Welcome back to the Zero to Ten podcast. As I mentioned last episode, the team and I have taken a little break over the holidays, so I decided to rebroadcast a couple of my most impactful interviews. Last episode was Chris Walker and how to build a revenue engine. This week, I bring back an episode that's guaranteed to make you more productive. Steve Glaveski is a leader in the personal productivity space, author, consultant, coach, venture, you name it, he's done it. And with the new year around the corner, this was the perfect time to bring this one back. Steve's book, Time Rich, was one of my favorites of the year. Enjoy, and we'll have some fresh new episodes starting in January. Now, on to Steve. Hey, Steve, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Brett, it's absolutely my pleasure to be here. No, it's definitely my pleasure. I think we're chatting a little bit offline. I give you credit. I've talked about it in a few of the episodes that your podcast and you were one of my inspirations when I started this podcast just over a year and a half ago. So listen to a lot, love the, co- the, the topics, you know, your focus on entrepreneurship, personal development, and you know, just the way you engage with with your guests was kind of an inspiration to uh, to get my podcast. So it's my thrill to have you on the, the podcast. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, sometimes you look at your numbers and the numbers are good, but you just don't know what kind of uh, impact or what kind of engagement you're getting with your listeners. So every now and then you hear someone say something just like, just like what you've just told me now. And, you know, it's really... Uh, heartwarming in a way because you do spend a lot of time putting out this content just like yourself with your podcast and you know even if one person out there listens to it and it fundamentally changes the way they go about work or it makes some dramatic shift in their lives you know it makes it all worthwhile so so thank you very much yeah no and it did and we'll get into that a little bit i think but before we get in, into your book and the, really the topic for the take can you give the audience just maybe a little bit of your background and what you're working on today Sure. So my background, I mean, I've followed uh, society's conventions of what success looks like, which was uh, going to university, getting that degree, climbing the corporate ladder. I spent time working at uh, big management consultancies, large investment banks. And around the age of 30, I felt that even though I was ticking all of these boxes, you know, the six-figure salaries, the, the business class flights, the, the junkets, all that sort of stuff, Deep down, I, I was miserably comfortable because I didn't really align with the kind of work that I was doing. There wasn't strengths alignment, there wasn't values alignment, and I didn't feel like I had a, a sense of control over the work either, you know, just a cog in a big machine. And so around that age, that's when I basically jumped off with a parachute of sorts to pursue entrepreneurship. I managed to raise about $150,000 for my first startup, which was like a Airbnb for office space called Hotdesk. And as most first startups go, that was unsuccessful, but it was more or less a stepping stone to Collective Campus, a corporate innovation and startup accelerator that I've been running for about six years. In that time, we've incubated over 100 startups. They've collectively raised about 30 million US dollars. We've worked on the innovation strategies of about 50 large brands around the world. And working on Collective Campus uh, has also given me the ability or the the, the freedom, rather, to go off and, and write books, host the Future Squared podcast, which you alluded to, and also spin off a couple of other companies in Lemonade Stand, a kids entrepreneurship program. And during the pandemic, we spun off a media outlet called No Filter, applying some of the principles that we'll no doubt touch on today uh, that come out of my, my new book, Time Rich. 
Yeah, now based on that journey, you know, I kind of shared a little bit, but I bounced back and forth between corporate and, and the startup space and not making it, you know, the cold turkey leap. Did you anticipate ever writing these books and having a podcast before you made that jump? Absolutely not. I think it comes back to what Paulo Coelho writes about in the book, The Alchemist. The central message of that book is that if you are in search of treasure, sometimes you need to go on a journey to find that the treasure was at your feet the entire time. There he is. He's got it in his hands. Perfect. Love that book. And I do too. that's a bit like entrepreneurship. You know, so many young entrepreneurs or first-time entrepreneurs think that they need to come up with that perfect idea. But more often than not, by going on that journey, you discover strengths, opportunities, and ideas that you wouldn't have if you didn't take those first steps in the, in the in the first place. And I mean, just incidentally, I spoke to someone last week who bought a 200 year old whiskey distillery on my podcast and he spent some time in the packaging business. He founded a packaging business, which perhaps isn't all that glamorous, but through that he observed that orders for yogurt packaging were going through the roof and he learned everything he wanted to learn about yogurt, got into that space. And then three years after launching a yogurt business, sold it for $80 million. So, you know, by working on one thing, you're able to identify another thing and that is your stepping stone into, you know, it might work, it might not, but ultimately don't sit around waiting for that perfect idea to kind of come from above because oftentimes it never does. Right. And, and I love that episode actually, because his, he doesn't even have a passion for yogurt, but he found the opportunity, didn't do it necessarily long-term, had obviously some success with it, and then moved into the, the whiskey business with the 200. Yeah, it was a really interesting, interesting guy, interesting episode too. So definitely. Yeah, I'm with you. And, and I told you, I'd probably take you down a few different rabbit holes and we're going to start early. But you had mentioned yeah. Lemonade Stand. And I know in one of your podcasts, you had mentioned an entrepreneurial mindset versus entrepreneurial learning. And I know I'm mixing that up a little bit where you had talked about it. We, we're not teaching you know, the, the students of today the right way to think about things. Mm. I'm 99% sure that was one of your podcast episodes that I listened to. Yeah. Uh, can you go into that a little bit? Because I'd love for one, the audience to hear, you know, the way you think about that and, mm -hmm. you know, why it's a little bit different than maybe the way we, we think of it here. Sure. From, from memory, I mean, that was about three years ago, but I think I know what you're talking, talking about, which was essentially, you know, when we teach the kids entrepreneurship, it's not, you know, I mean, to take a step back, we're teaching kids as young as seven years old entrepreneurship, either in our two-day workshops or in our online SaaS platform, but it's not that we want them to become business owners tomorrow. Hey, if they choose to set up an online store and sell uh, widgets online and make some pocket money instead of harassing their parents all the time, fantastic. But it's really about developing the entrepreneurial mindset that perhaps they're not learning at school. And that mindset comes back to you know challenging the status quo, associational thinking, which is essentially connecting the dots between uh, disparate topics to come up with new solutions, experimentation, you know, if you're unsure of something, well, don't sit forever pontificating over what to do. Don't jump to conclusions and, and do the wrong thing, but test your ideas um, and see if that's going to teach you something. So, you know, what are these underlying characteristics behind entrepreneurship and how can we teach the kids that, especially the concept of failure being a teacher rather than something that is frowned upon? Because if you look at school, you either you, you sit down, you have some kind of standardized test, you perform well great, big green tick, you don't, big red cross. And so we kind of programmed from a young age to avoid that big red cross and, and that makes us feel bad. It hurts our ego. It's something we need to shy away from. 
And when we're older, that can manifest in our entrepreneurial ventures, in spending too much time planning out our business plan, projecting what the next five years revenue is going to look like based on nothing more than an idea that hasn't got customers yet. And, and that is, for a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, they ring the death knell of their business before they've even started. So, uh, and I think that's also something that we apply to our lives as well, you know, embracing failure, uh, which is something I've, you know, speaking about rabbit holes, it's something I've written about quite a bit in, in terms of adversity or our relationship with, with adversity being like a muscle that we can train by trying things that scare us. You know, in my case, it was hitting the stand-up comedy open mic circuit about a couple of years ago now. I did five gigs. I was absolutely terrible. And even though I've gotten up in front of hundreds of people to deliver keynotes, getting up in the little smoky back alley bar in front of 10 people and trying to make them laugh for five minutes was a whole different proposition. <laughs> but so glad I did that. And like most things that scare you, you step off stage just feeling awesome, no matter how bad you sucked. At least, at least that was my experience. Yeah, no, I think it, it makes sense in a much larger or smaller scale. You know, when I hit record on the podcast for the first time, right? It was, mm-hmm. it took me a while to do it, hit record because I'm like, am I ready for this? I know no crap about it, do it, but you know, you do it and you become better at it or you realize maybe this just isn't for me, but too often, I think you're right. People just sit on the sidelines and don't do anything versus, versus trying it. So mm. hopefully, you know, with this pandemic's giving a lot of people time to think, <laughs> reassess where, you know, they want to go, what they want to do. And actually it's probably a pretty good segue into, into your new book. I think the timing couldn't have been better. I know you started writing it well before the pandemic and, you know, just to make sure I get the, the title. So time rich, do your best work, live your, your best life. And at the core, I took it as, you know, time is a valuable commodity. You're not going to get back. You can make money back, but you're not going to get time back. And essentially the way we work, the way we play, live our lives, we're, mm-hmm. we're not optimizing. You're not even optimizing, not even looking at the way we, we spend our time. So love the book, by the way, you know, it was funny. I started following some of your advice. I heard from you about flow state and we'll get into that, you know, from one mm-hmm. of your, your podcasts or one of your writings. And then you just kind of built kind of a blueprint. So, so for today, I thought one, maybe you can share with the audience why you decided to write this book now, and then maybe we can break it down into a couple parts to, you know, tie it back obviously to, to the audience and the B2B founders. But I think this is one of those manuals for work life, <laughs> no matter what you do, yeah. you're going to get value from this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I think, um, I mean, just on the pandemic, I did note a couple of weeks ago that business registrations in the United States have spiked big time, which obviously could be attributable to many factors. Uh, Someone, folks who said, well, that's probably because more people are trying to cash in on all the government handouts that businesses are are getting. But also, I think a big part of it is people are being stood down from work and they've got all this time on their hands. So they figure, well, it's as good a time as any to pursue that business idea. I've always been looking to pursue or just try something different, which I think is encouraging. In terms of the book, I mean, I wrote it about two years ago and it was effectively inspired by an article I wrote for Harvard Business Review called The Case for the Six-Hour Workday. And that article itself came about because while I was building Collective Campus, I found myself anchoring to the past in terms of what I learned in the corporate world around signaling. And so I was signaling quote unquote hard work by staying back at the office until 6 or 7 p.m. because I wanted to set a, a good example for my team, even though by about 
3 p.m. most days, if I was being objective, I was more or less done. And the thing about that was I'm in the office till seven, I'm getting home at eight, it's dark, I can't go surfing, I'm not really spending too much time with anyone else at that point on personal relationships, on other interests. And I said, well, why am I doing this? You know, like I said, I'm anchoring to the past. Let's try something different. So based on what I knew of you know, the flow state and the fact that you can only really get into that space for about four hours a day, which we'll, I'm sure we'll touch on, I decided to run a two-week, six-hour workday experiment. And the beauty of this experiment was that it forced my team to focus on high-value tasks to automate and outsource away rudimentary tasks, to do away with waste like one-hour meetings for the sake of communicating information, and to get better at cultivating you know, that flow state so we're not in this state of constant distraction. And so what we found at the end of those two weeks was we were just as if not more productive than we were working those 10 to 12-hour days, but we were also feeling a lot better about it. You know, we had more time to spend on interests with people we, we care about, going surfing, doing whatever we enjoy. And we'd take that energy and bring it back to work. Um, so we'd be performing better, but we'd also be better people, um, emotionally better people. And so, yeah, chronicled this in, in Harvard Business Review and that article kind of blew up. You know, the Wall Street Journal syndicated it, as did a few others. And so I had a conversation with my publisher at the time and said, hey, I think there's a book in this based on what I know of my time in the corporate world, based on what I know about working with, you know, over a hundred startups they're all anchoring to the past. They're all yeah. signaling and working these crazy hours at the expense of every other aspect of their lives. And you know, if you had to do that, fair enough. But I feel like a lot of it comes back to just bad work practices that come at the expense of us living fuller lives. Yeah, and it, it's so true, <laughs> and it's it's universal, and you know, and we won't have to go back too far because you do actually go and touch about the origins of how you know the eight-hour workday started, which was actually interesting in itself with the history lesson. Because I always assumed it was World War One, World War Two-ish when we started to get mm. the factories, mass production, and everybody started to centralize, do work there. But you actually brought it back to the 18th century is when we first started, maybe a little bit later than that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think about today or even, you know, I've been in this space now almost 30 years that it hasn't changed much until the last maybe five years and still hasn't, we haven't really changed fundamentally the way we did it. And I think you touched on, you know, we moved from tasks and this is my interpretation, tasks to knowledge workers, right? Where mm -hmm. we used to have to do tasks to get things done. It makes sense to do a team, but we're moving to more knowledge. But I think, you know, pre-pandemic, most of these organizations, big co companies were still set up for everybody to be in the office. And when you think about the time waste and the productivity waste in those offices, not just from not being in a flow state, but the interruptions mm -hmm. and, you know, activity base versus output, you know, how, it, within your research, did you, obviously you found that with your team, that you could be more productive in less time. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's, it's still a huge problem, isn't it? <laughs> Unless I'm oh, yeah. missing something, right? Well, it's definitely a, a huge problem. And, you know, it, it does go back to the, to the 18th century, you know, the Industrial Revolution. And at, at that time, people, there was no cap on hours work. There was no occupational health and safety. You know, you had kids as young as 10 years old working in the coal mines, getting paid something like two shillings a day, which is absolutely nothing. They would have things like, limbs torn off in the coal mines and there'd be absolutely no compensation offered. That would just be part and parcel, just 
you know, half of the course essentially during that time. And so it wasn't until 1850 that Robert Owen, a textile manufacturer in the UK, started lobbying for this eight hours rest, eight hours work, eight hours play. But it didn't really become a reality until pre-World War II. It was 1938 where the Fair Labor Standards Act was ratified in the United States and, and the rest of the world more or less at the same time. And so it's been about 80 years that this eight-hour workday has been a reality. But as you alluded to in that time, work has shifted from algorithmic, process-oriented, step-by-step work to cognitively complex work. And so while you could draw a straight line between hours and output on, say, an assembly line, um, presence and productivity, you can't do the same when it comes to cognitive work. When it comes to cognitive work, as you suggested, you know, when I was researching my book, Countless examples of organizations doing more in less time. Or people as well. If I think about Charles Darwin, one of the most fundamental thinkers of all time, who penned the theory of evolution, he worked about four hours a day. I mean, five hours, but one hour for lunch, right? So uh, (laughs) it didn't stop him from penning the theory of evolution. A study that I highlighted in the book uh, took three control groups, so three sets of scientists, one group worked 25 hours a week, sorry, 20 hours a week. The second worked 35. The third worked 60. Uh, and it turned out that the 20-hour-a-week 20 group was twice as productive as the 35-hour-a-week group. And the 60-hour-a-week group was the least productive of all because, of course, they don't have time to rest and rejuvenate. They're focused on low-level, shallow tasks and they're burnt out, you know, they're ineffective, they're cynical about their work and they're exhausted. And so you can do that for short amounts of time. You know, I like to say that work is kind of like you know, an NBA season. You've got your off season, your regular season, your playoffs, your finals. But if we treat all, every day, all day, every year, like it's, you know, game seven of the NBA finals, yeah, then yeah, yeah. we're going to burn out very quickly. Hey, Microsoft in Japan last year, they ran a four-day four, four day work week and they found that productivity increased by, by 40% during that time. So, uh, you know, coming back to this notion of productivity not being linear when it comes to cognitive work, countless studies show that we can only get into the flow state for about four hours a day. But because of the way the modern office goes about its business, because of all of these bad habits that permeate it, like we're interrupted 50 to 60 times a day. We've got push notifications on our desktops, on our smartphones popping up all day long. Uh, we check our email on average 72 times a day. Uh, we spend about four hours a day looking at our smartphones, which works out to about eight weeks a year, which to me doesn't sound like a great use of time. Um, and we're expected to attend all sorts of meetings all day long. We're in, invited to one-hour meetings. And more often than not, in many companies, you don't really have a say as to whether or not you say no to that. It's just expected that you attend. And so you could have all sorts of priorities you're working towards. You turn up to work and you look at your calendar and suddenly half of your day is gone because people have just invited you to all sorts of meetings where you are just one of potentially seven, eight, nine people there. And, and you don't really need to be there, but the culture suggest that you do. And so you find yourself being busy, busy, busy all day long and not really having that much to show for it come the end of the day, but being really demoralized and, and unfulfilled by, by your work. Yeah. And just say, hey, this is what we do. This is the way we've done it. Right. Hard to change it. I don't know if you ever seen the movie Office Space. I believe I have, but not for a long time. Yeah, a long time. It's an older movie and it's still spot on even today. I think it's 20 plus years old. But one of the workers was interviewing by two 
efficiency consultants and he walks through his day and the, the worker basically says, you know what, on any given week, I probably only get about 15 minutes of real work done. And everybody laughs, but I'm like, when I think back in my corporate career and the way you just outlined the meetings and the tasks and the interruptions, it may be a slight exaggeration, but probably not too far from the truth of right, really getting real work done. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, definitely. Like if, if I think back to my time in the, in the corporate world, like if I took away all the meetings and everything else, I think I could have achieved the same outcomes, maybe on two hours a day, maybe three certain times, but definitely didn't necessitate you know, 8.30 to 8.30 hours, which you know, I was privy to at one of the companies that I worked at. But you know, something I talk about in the book as well is what you often hear when you ask someone why they're working so late is that, oh, well, I need to wait until the rest of the team goes home or until my superior or my manager goes home because I want to signal effectively that I'm, that I'm busy. I'm like, well, have you actually got work to do? Not really. Um, maybe I do, but I don't it's not critical. It's not urgent, but you end up playing these games and these games are also easy to fall into because, you know, work is a socially validated activity and it can be a source of, you know, self-esteem for a lot of people. So if you're working for a company that has some kind of status associated with it, working those long hours is is not a frowned upon activity. Um, And it also means that you don't have to then go off and maybe work on your personal relationships. You don't have to go off and, like I said, take, take on some challenging new pursuits that might hurt your ego and put you out of your comfort zone because you know, you're, you're sitting pretty in your, your six-figure salary at a skyscraper somewhere in Manhattan and you're deriving a lot of self-worth from that. But ultimately, as uh, Bronnie Ware, a palliative care nurse who wrote a book called Five Regrets of the Dying, noted, People, you know, she's worked with thousands of people on their deathbeds and, you know, she's ushered them into the next life. And ultimately, no one says, I wish I worked more hours. No one says, I wish I had more zeros in my bank account. In fact, they say, I wish I hadn't worked so hard and I wish I lived a life true to myself and spent more time with people that I care about. So I think spending a bit more time reflecting on what we want our eulogy to say rather than just what we want our LinkedIn profile to say or our CV to say, I think is a very worthwhile exercise. Yeah, hundred percent. And like I said, I'm a little bit older than you, but appreciate the uh, the time. You know, better late than never. But I think the world has changed, and the expectations and the opportunities are different. And you don't get time back. So you get a chance to earn the money, but you, you can't earn time back. So how do we take advantage of it? And you know, kind of before we transition into the how, because I'm curious to dig a little bit deeper. Uh, one on the personal, but also on team. I think that'd be harder to get a team into flow state so we can work, mm-hmm. we'll get there. But I'm curious from your perspective on the opportunity now, let's go to the entrepreneurial space, right? In the B2B world, you know, I've been arguing and advocating for a number of years that there's real opportunity because a lot of these legacy B2B companies are outdated. They weren't built to sell and service in today's technology in these world. They're built in silos and hard to get. Now with the pandemic and looking at, man, is there a way to create a more efficient organization that's built on, you know, kind of the principles that you have in your book that, hey, we've got four to five really good hours. How do we take advantage of it? Not only take advantage of it, but build it into the DNA of the organization. Because as we talked about history, really hard to change. And, you know, I think some of them are struggling with where we're at today. So I've you know, I'd love to get your perspective and throw you, you know, on the eight ball here for a second, just to see, you know, where do you see, do you see opportunity in this space for these younger startups that are more 
like I said, agile and built differently, right? Well, definitely. And it's not just startups, it's any organization who embraces a different way of work. And I think uh, Tim O'Reilly summed it up well in his book, What's the Future, in which he penned a, what he called a business model for the new economy. And that business model was essentially characterized by things like um, automation, talent on demand, um, algorithmic driven decision making, and just a unique, magical user experience uh, at its core. But effectively, these are the things that will help organizations achieve a lot more with a lot less. These are the things that will ensure that those feedback loops that can oftentimes be really long in large organizations become really small. And that's a motivating place to work. If you look at organizations like, say, your Netflixes of the world, they aren't big on debilitating process and policy because they know that if you have too much policy, firstly, it stops serving a purpose. Policy and process is there to help us deliver on an existing repeatable business model. It's there to ensure that there's you know, mistakes, say expensive mistakes aren't made, but like anything in life, once you go too far, purpose is lost. It's like, I, I feel like everything exists on an inverted U, uh, even stress. No stress is not good for us. And, and there's a, a law around this called the Yerkes-Dodson law where no stress is just, just means we're just going to sit on the couch all day and watch Netflix. A little bit of stress actually gets us into that flow state. It helps, helps us do our best work, but too much stress can be debilitating, can be chronic, can leave us in hospital and, and struggling with depression and all sorts of ailments. But when it comes back to process, finding the minimum viable processes required to get your organization to, to, to operate at its optimal point. So with Netflix, they keep processes and policies to a minimum because that empowers their people to make decisions, to inject their DNA into the organization. And on this point, you know, I've talked about the business model for the new economy, automation, talent on demand, algorithmic driven decision making, but also making sure that you step away from trying to outsource accountability for every single decision. Uh, you know, Jeff Bezos talks about the difference between type one and type two decisions in that 1997 shareholder letter to Amazon shareholders. And type one decisions, big, hairy, audacious decisions, irreversible, highly consequential. Type two decisions, inconsequential, inexpensive. In fact, there's probably utility to making the wrong decision because you learn something and providing you fix it, you move forward, okay. you end up in a better position. Now, the problem with a lot of large organizations and even startups nowadays is that we treat all decisions like type one decisions. So it doesn't matter how inconsequential it is, we'll call a meeting and we'll invite four or five people along to that meeting to decide. Uh, we're always looking to outsource accountability to get that third party validating our, our decision rather than just taking ownership. So a culture built around ownership as well and clear delineation between type one and type two is going to go a lot further than one that's forever pontificating around a boardroom as to what they should do about the, the color of a button on the new website, for example. So, um, you know, that's why we founded uh, No Filter Media during the pandemic, because it's more or less a, an, an experiment. You look at most media organizations, even, even some of the smaller, newer age outlets, you know, hundreds of staff, they've got writers, they've got marketers, they've got all sorts of stuff going on. And what we've got with No Filter, we literally use three people working maybe a day a week on that. And within three months, we got from idea to media outlet with six podcasts on it, uh, several hundred articles, and we've got new content being published every day. But that's basically driven by automation, talent on demand, uh, you know, crowdsourcing our material, and just 
yeah, automating with the marketing, the content distribution, absolutely everything and coming up with a business model where we share the spoils with our writers and our podcasters rather than paying them a fee up front. And so far, so good. And the benefit of that is if we're competing for ad money, well, our cost to serve is exponentially lower than a bloated media company. So we can we can offer an advertising company way better rates. Like we can yeah. charge half of what a large media company would charge and still have much larger margins. And, and that is a kind of microcosm of the benefits that you get in any industry. If you are able to operate at a lower cost to serve, you are, you are able to make decisions faster. And ultimately when you do that, you're engaging high caliber talent because they want to work in a place where they can make a decision, they can take action, they can see the result of that, good or bad, and keep moving forward. That's empowering, it's fulfilling. But if they're in a place where they feel paralyzed, where they feel like they can't actually get anything done, they're either going to be disgruntled or they're going to leave. And um, at the moment, 85% of people globally are either not engaged or disengaged by their work, um, according to Gallup. And that was a 2019 research study that they ran. So that means what? Six out of every seven people, or is it seven out of eight? One of the two are currently disengaged at work or not engaged, which means there's a lot of opportunity there for companies who do create these cultures to, you know, ultimately these high performance cultures and the ones that get it right will have a massive advantage. Yeah, no, so, so true and, and so good. That's why I'm so bullish on the opportunity for founders today to create the right orgs, create the right teams, use the right tools. Don't fall for the old traditional methods, especially you know, a lot of people I work with have been in the corporate world for you know 10 to 15 years. Now they're going to start their own company. All they've known is the old world. So more times we get folks like you talking about, hey, there is a different way to do this. Think about it. And mm-hmm. You know, I just want to, before we get into kind of some of your recommendations, you know, one of the things I, I liked you talk about the decision-making was the rule of two, right? I think I got that right, mm-hmm. where yeah. two people are intimately familiar with this, say, hey, you guys go come up with a solution. It's, you know, so simple, but it's so powerful. <laughs> and when I think about all the, you know, my corporate time, if we would have taken that versus a, a team of, of 10 with a subcommittee of six with report outs. And if we would have just said, hey, here's the two people this is most important to, come back with a recommendation. You know, it's, again, it's it's amazing that we took it so far the other direction. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the rule of two comes from Mark, I believe it was Mark Randolph over at Netflix where they employ that, as well as um, Bill Campbell, who is affectionately known by many in Silicon Valley as the trillion dollar coach. And, you know, he worked with Jeff Bezos. He worked with Steve Jobs. He worked with all sorts of high profile CEOs, I believe Eric Schmidt at Google as well. Um, And he was a fan of the rule of two as well, where you get two people who might have, perhaps they might disagree with each other, but they also bring a lot of domain expertise to the table. And you ultimately come up with a better solution by bringing two people who might see the world a little bit differently to the table, providing it's not too polarizing, like perhaps Trump and Biden, because then nothing absolutely gets done. <laughs> but the rule of two, I think, is, is is key. And, you know, an example of that could be, you know, with our corporate startup partnership programs, where we bring together startups and corporates to bring new solutions to the world, and we're working with large organizations. And, uh, you know, I won't name any, but oftentimes what happens is we'll have to put together, say, a website for these programs. And initially, we'll be introduced to, say, a marketing team from the sponsor organization. And they'll be like, okay, well, can you fill out this you know, five-page document? We'll then go off and we'll present it to our steering committee in a couple of weeks. Then we'll come back to you. And 
We're like, this isn't going to work for us. So what I do, I just get my designer. I'm like, hey, can you just mock up a website for this program? You know the drill. An hour later, she sent it back to me. I send them the link. They're like, is this going to work? I'm like, yeah, actually, that, that's fine. So we just saved ourselves two, three, maybe four weeks of going back and forward. All it took was one person to create a mock-up. And so that's an example of one, we've got these processes where we're outsourcing accountability to large groups in order to get everyone on the bus. But by virtue of doing that, it slows things down dramatically. Um, but two, following these processes and policies that perhaps hurt us more than they help us. You know, they're supposed to, you know, process is only good if it actually helps us create value above and beyond the cost. But in this case, the cost benefit equation just doesn't make sense to spend four weeks creating a simple website, which we use to you know, collect uh, applications to, to a program. So case by case basis. Exactly. Again, back to the reason there's so much opportunity in this space. And, you know, the other concept they introduced, I'm a big believer in the Pareto principle, 80-20 rule, 100% on board across the board. But then you introduced, and maybe you can give credit if it wasn't yours, you know, the 64-4. So take, applying the 80-20 against the 80-20, I'm like, whoa, okay. So essentially 4% drives 64, which is even more mind-blowing than, you know, the 80-20, which was always mm-hmm. a good rule of thumb. So is that fairly, you find that obviously when you wrote about it, you didn't find that fairly consistent, but I found that super interesting when you're trying to prioritize what you want to work on, right? Yeah, the Pareto principle is fascinating and the fact that it just shows up everywhere. I mean, 20% of, of the roads in a major city is where you find 80% of the cars, for example, or 20% of the people own 80% of, of the land. It shows up everywhere and I've run a few experiments myself. I picked uh, video games and I looked at the Nintendo console, the PlayStation, the Xbox, and, you know, their top, it was, in their case, it was the top 20% of games generated about 75% of the revenue. And of course, Super Mario Bros. was right up there at the top of the list for uh, for um, the Nintendo entertainment system. And um, exactly, so it's 80-20, but then you break it down 64-4 and 51. Now, the thing about that is, if you have a business and say you're generating a million dollars revenue, you might look at that and say, well, I haven't got 1% of my customers generating 50%, but it's also about cultivating that product or service that is going to get one specific customer to spend more money with you. Like what are the upsells? What are the, what are the, what is that complete comprehensive package going to look like? They're just going to blow the mind of one customer and they just become your cash cow customer. Now, of course, You've got them, but you still want to grow your business. You don't want to be relying on one customer because then you've got all your eggs in one basket. But it really is about uh, looking for those opportunities. And another place this actually shows up right, is in something called Price's Law. So Price's Law suggests that the square root of a company's headcount creates half the value. So if you've got 100 people in your organization, 10 tend to create half the value. And then you kind of have 90 hangers-on, people that make up the numbers in meetings and all that sort of stuff, which comes back to what we were talking about a few moments ago about building those lean, uh, fast decision-making, highly automated organizations. And you will find that if you take those steps that you perhaps have a lot of passengers on the bus who don't need to be there. Now, some may say that's uh, that statement lacks compassion, but ultimately, as Yilva Johansson, the Swedish employment minister, said a couple of years ago, you know, we won't protect the jobs, we will protect the people. So people 
like any species, need to adapt to the changing environment, get upskilled, learn new skills, go off and, and do new things. But keeping someone in a role where they're basically just moving paper around, uh, following a process, like that's not a very fulfilling place to be and ultimately leaves people feeling miserably comfortable going back to what we started the conversation with. So getting them prepared for more fulfilling work elsewhere or automating away those low value tasks and getting them engaged on higher value tasks, I think is, is, is better for everyone in the long term. Yeah, no, and I'm going to use that. I'll give you full credit. Miserably comfortable. I think that's a perfect way to describe corporate America <laughs> back in the day because everybody, it's just, it's what you do. You got to get a paycheck. And, you know, I, I really, again, haven't thought about that. I started thinking about it after reading the book, how I'm going to apply this to the thing. And it's, it's not, I want to say it's not too overly complicated, but even with the 80-20 truth and prices law, then you can really start to quickly focus on where and what you should be focused on and not wasting the time on some of these other tasks. And, mm -hmm. you know, maybe that's a good transition to kind of your recommendation. And <laughs> I was curious because I saw it was, you know, that the acronym, I guess, was you know, Peacoat. Now, yes. did you have to play around with that to get Peacoat to fit in there? Or did it just fit nicely as you were coming out with, you know, kind of the the roadmap? And roadmap's a little too technical, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, you know, it's so Peacoat's was, so the, pro, the challenge with the mnemonics in general is you, like you alluded to, you might try and fit things in and that what happens there is it might come at the expense of something else. Because you're like, well, what about this? Well, it doesn't fit the mnemonic, so I guess we'll just drop that. <laughs> but what I had was I wrote down what I thought was six of the key steps. And then I looked for ways that I might fit them into a word rather than coming up with the word first and then finding the steps. So that way I can ensure that there is coverage. And so just real quickly for your audience, I mean, PCOTS effectively stands for uh, prioritize, which we've covered. So what's the 80-20 look like? Cut. So Cut is about eliminating waste, essentially. So once a month or once a quarter, what you might want to do uh, either on your own or with your team is draw up, say, a quadrant on a, on a whiteboard and just label it in each corner, do more, do less, start doing, stop doing, and just reflecting on you know, your tasks, your products, your marketing channels, your sales techniques, the customers you're targeting, the geographies you're targeting, and so on. And just reflecting on what just isn't working, what is working, what haven't we tried yet, and so on. And what happens there is you, over a period of time, you're eliminating the low value activities, but you're introducing higher value activities, you're doubling down on things that are working. And so over a period of, say, a year, two years, you end up in a pretty you know, high performance position rather than just not reflecting on these things as Mark Twain urged us, urged us to do, stop and reflect and just finding yourself completing these five-page marketing documents for inconsequential websites, uh, as we were saying a few moments ago. So yeah. really important activity. O in PCOTS stands for outsource. Uh, nowadays, you know, tools like Freelancer, Upwork, uh, you name it, you can find people to do basic rudimentary tasks for you for about 10 US dollars an hour. And if and you should only outsource if things can't be automated, which is the A in PCOTS. Tools like Zapier, like if this, then that, uh, help us automate a lot of the activities that previously we do manually, like moving data from one spreadsheet into another and doing things of that persuasion. We've used Zapier as well as tools like Airtable and WebMerge to automate the generation of client proposals or prospect proposals. We've used it to, speaking of the media outlet, we 
created, say, a HTML form that we send to public uh, facing writers where they can submit their articles and that will automatically go into our CMS for review by our editors and we just have to hit publish and that way we can create content at scale. So there's so many things you can do in that space. Um, and just on that, I've got a, a PDF I published at uh, timerichbook.com, which has about, it's about 30 pages long and it's full of automation tools that people can check out. So whether it's customer service, admin, marketing, sales, there's all sorts of things you can automate and it doesn't cost a lot of money. It just saves you a lot in the long term. The T in Picotes, two of the biggest ways that people waste their time, Brett, I find is jumping to conclusions or analysis paralysis. Now, in both of those cases, what is essentially driving that is we're not validating our assumptions. So if you're not sure whether your idea is good, definitely then it's not worth jumping forward and investing a lot of time and money on it. But at the same time, if you're not sure and you're forever pontificating around a boardroom table, let's go off and test it to find the assumptions that underpin the idea. You know, if it's Uber back in 2007, well, the assumption is, will people get into a car with a stranger or will a, will a person get, uh, allow strangers to hop into their car? Now, you could build the app. You could create you know, a, a com- comprehensive marketing campaign, you could onboard hundreds of drivers, or you could go out to a busy taxi rank on a Saturday night and ask people if they'd pay $20 to get into a private car to get home that night. Maybe show them some ID to make sure that you're validating some of the security concerns or allaying them of some of their security concerns. Mm-hmm. And that's one way you can quickly test those assumptions and see whether or not people would be willing to, to pay. And conscious, uh, the Picot's spiel takes a little while, but I'll wrap it up with S, which is start your engines which is effectively what are those things you can do to ensure that when you sit down at your desk, you are your absolute best, you know, exercise, nutrition, getting some sunlight, uh, making sure you're getting enough sleep, like all of these things are critical. And uh, one thing I just wanted to double click on there was, you know, again, going back to some of these bad habits that permeate the corporate world, eating lunch at your desk, uh, working through. Countless studies show that when we're sitting sedentary in the same spot for hours on end, like we might be physically there, but cognitively, we're offline. And something as simple as, say, a 10 or 15-minute walk outdoors in nature has been shown to release uh, BDNF or brain-derived neutrophic factor because our bodies, they they identify movement as a fight-or-flight moment. And so this chemical effectively helps us to stay focused in those moments because it would would have served us well in the African savannah where we might have you know, fight or flight, we saw a predator and maybe we needed to run and be super focused in that moment. Or maybe we we eyeballed some prey and we needed to catch it in order to eat, survive, so that we could live long enough to reproduce. So rather than eating lunch at your desk, uh, if you're finding yourself struggling to focus, maybe go for a 10, 15 minute walk, come back to it and you'd be surprised how much clearer your thinking actually is. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point too. And the one thing I was going to ask you even further double click on, because you mm-hmm. do talk about drugs, not <laughs> recreational drug or anything, but I think you call nootropics and some other things to help with focus. What's your take or your perspective on those? Are they far, are you an advocate of those or mm-hmm. proceed cautiously? Or are you more of a, I mean, if you do all the right things, naturally get outside, exercise, sleep, yeah. that it's not necessary. I, I think, I mean, I, Prior to this podcast, I did have some lion's mane and some MCT oil in my coffee. But what I will say is I feel like nootropics are a, it's the icing on the cake, so to speak. So there's no point pumping yourself full of nootropics if you're not getting four hours sleep a night, if you're not 
moving, if you're eating nothing but KFC and McDonald's all day, and also if you know you're not, if there's a lot of conflict in your life. I think if there's a lot of conflict in your life, in your personal life, then that's also going to weigh you down emotionally. So that when you sit down to your work, you're just you're just not going to be who you could be. You're not you're not your actual you're not the actualized version of yourself. So I think if you get those things sorted out, things like nootropics might help you, or they might just generate a placebo effect, which is one of the most effective effects as, as various studies show. So perhaps that's why I do it. But I have a friend in this space called uh, Lucas Aoun, whose Instagram is ergogenic health. And he's like huge on this nootropic space. He's basically a human guinea pig. So if people want to learn more about that, they should check out his profile. But um, ultimately get the fundamentals right, sleep, exercise, nutrition, and try and live a, a good personal life. And I think that will get you 95% of the way there. Yeah. So even beyond the 80-20, right? Yeah. <laughs> Take even further. No, and that makes sense. You know, we're going to put the production team to, to good use today to pull all the uh, the links and the, the references out of here, which is, man, I've got to tell you, your memory with this stuff is incredible. Because even listen to you on podcasts, the ability to pull you know, quotes or lines from different, you know, either guests that you've had, authors, you know, Marcus Aurelius back in, you know, some of his meditation yeah. writing. So it's, man, I can barely remember what I had for lunch yesterday. So we'll yeah, definitely but, notate that in the, uh, in, in the show notes as well. Fantastic. Awesome. Um, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, it's, I, I, I think it's just by virtue of doing things. And I find that interviews, speaking to so many people on the podcast over the last almost five years, it makes it easy to remember certain things, I find. Um, but also when you're reading a book as well, like so many people will read books cover to cover and not take any notes, not highlight anything. And I think if you want to get better at remembering things, firstly, highlighting what you're reading. Second, taking some notes, relating it to some existing concepts. There we go. Brett, Brett's all over it. But highly, re- relating it to some existing concepts that you're familiar with, maybe you're turning them into blog posts or teaching someone else what you've learned. And that's just going to help you consolidate those learnings so that you can recall them at a later date. Because uh, was it Herman Ebbinghaus? I might get his first name wrong, but it's definitely Ebbinghaus. Uh, he came up with the theory, the forgetting curve uh, back in the early 20th century. And they basically found that if you don't apply what you learn, you forget about 90% of it within a week. But if you do apply it, that retention rate goes way up. And so that's also one of the challenges with, with education in general. You know, we, we started off talking about lemonade stand, whether it's education at a K to 12 level or whether it is say corporate learning and development. Oftentimes we just learn things for the sake of ticking a you know, continuous professional education box. But we're learning things at the wrong time where we don't really yeah. have the ability to apply it to our work. And then six months later or even one week later, we've forgotten most of what we've learned. So if you are learning, look for ways to apply what you learn as quickly as possible. Otherwise, it might just be you know, an ego-boosting task that doesn't really serve you in the long term. <laughs> and back to your point, you know, time is money. We're not getting time back. So you, if you're going to put the time into it, you might as well get something out of it. So Exactly. Oh, that's awesome. And I know I, I want to be super respectful of your time, but I do have two more questions for you. One, well, one before I get to that. Anything else you want to, to chat about before you know we start to wrap this up? Did we not cover anything that you think we, we should talk about? Oh, look, there, there's a whole bunch that we haven't covered, but I think if we tried to cover everything, we'd be here all day. So um, there's a whole bunch more. I mean, I do, as you would expect, I do encourage people to check out the book. 
because it is full of, as you say, roadmaps and frameworks that people can apply either to their work as individuals, but also to their teams. Um, one thing we perhaps want to touch on when it comes to team productivity is, uh, you know, since we've moved away from the centralized office, since so many people are now working remotely, it creates perfect conditions for organizations to embrace asynchronous communication. You know, up until now, organizations have been built around real-time communication, uh, hyper-responsive employees saying yes to all sorts of meeting requests. But now that everybody's working remotely, like we can move towards asynchronous communication, which basically means that you know, it's about responding to people when it best suits us, rather than expecting that everybody is online at the same time all day long as perhaps we might have been uh, expected to on the Industrial Revolution factory room floor, right? Yeah. Um, this is something that uh, WordPress has put into place. So Matt Mullenweg, Automatic, uh, they basically power 30% of the internet. They have 1,200 employees across 75 countries and they don't have a centralized office. So when you do embrace asynchronous communication, what it means is people can create and cultivate days as it best suits them, which means that they can cultivate more time to get into flow and aim to work the hours that suit them. So when you do have that, you do away with those 50 to 60 distractions a day. You empower people to, to focus on one thing for extended periods of time. And it also means that by designing the day that best suits you, it, it, it supports 50% of the workforce who are night owls. So 50% right. of the workforce currently identify as night owls, um, which means that they suffer from a form of social jet lag 10 hours after wake. Sorry, they do their best work 10 hours after waking up. But if you try to get them to work or to a Zoom call at say 8 or 9 a.m., they suffer from a form of social jet lag. And over extended periods of time, that can create anxiety and depression. Okay. So for so long, we've been getting half of the workforce to work at 9 a.m., even though they're, they're effectively night owls. So asynchronous communication, I think, is key um, in that respect. But the other benefits of it are that it also means that you're no longer bound by a local workforce who's working at, during your time zone. You can work with people all over the world and tap that global talent pool, which is, again, only going to give organizations who do practice this a massive leg up over yeah. organizations who don't. Yeah, 100% agree with that. And even with, you know, the asynchronous communication amongst family and friends, right? You mm -hmm. know, people expect, my wife included, hey, I texted you. Did you respond? I'm like, no, not yet. I haven't looked. I'm trying to, you know, keep somewhat distraction-free. I have, we can all work to get better, but I mean, it's just not work. It's, you know, personal, it's family, it's friends. Everybody's kind of got that real-time expectation. I texted you. Why didn't you text me back? Right. Yeah. Yeah, and exactly. So, and I think just on that, uh, setting those expectations is key, especially now that people are working remotely. What we're finding is so many people working longer hours because they're just not creating those boundaries with their team. So if you find yourself responding to emails and Slack messages at 8 p.m. while well, you're basically sending a signal to the team that, hey, it's okay to message me at this time or it's expect me to respond at this time. But you need to be intentional about saying, look, after X p.m., like 5 p.m., 6 p.m., whatever it is, you know, I'm with my family, I'm doing my own thing, don't expect a response until later. And if that organization that you're working for doesn't accept that, if leadership is setting a standard where you need to be responding within 10 minutes uh, until 10 p.m., well, maybe that's not the kind of organization that you really want to be working for. No, so true and for sure. And, and you talked about giving the 
the opportunity to improve, right? Like employees work the hours they need to work, but yet there's a number of, you know, videos and memes going around that, you know, employees now working from home are actually taping their mouse to a Roomba that's moving around. So it looks like their activity online is that they're logged in. I'm like, man, people are working harder just to show they're online. And that goes back to, you know, activity-based, you know, performance versus outcome or out, you know, whatever the expected, you know, result is. And it's hard. That's going to be a hard shift for some companies, but. Definitely. And also that comes back to what we said earlier. Like if you do create a high performance culture, which helps you to attract and engage high performance talent, you might need to worry about them sticking a mouse to a Roomba because they're, they're <laughs> motivated to actually contribute. And that values alignment piece, like finding people who really believe in the mission of your organization, um, people whose strengths really complement your organization, who you empower to make decisions, to contribute, they're going to be motivated. And over a long period of time, if you've got people sticking mice to Roomba at one company and another company where people are showing up, cultivating the flow state, doing their best work, like who's going to end up further in like it's, it's a no-brainer. All the best employees are going to flock one way. They may there might be some hesitancy at first as they have to think about changing jobs or companies and may have to go a little bit smaller with you know, up and coming. But yeah, hundred percent agree with you. It's gonna mm-hmm. it's gonna change. So awesome. All right. So two last questions for you, I promise. And the first one is, you know, what's what's next for you? The books come out. Uh, what what are you working on here the rest of the year? Uh, I think really just no filter media um, is the main thing I'm working on. I mean, we have at Collective Campus launched a couple of uh, corporate startup partnership programs, uh, one of which is with uh, Allen's Linklaters, so a large uh, international law firm. Um, so we'll be looking for legal tech solutions in that space. And the other is with a consortium of water, power and utilities uh, bodies here in Australia, where we're looking for water tech solutions. So any startups in, in that space listening, definitely check out the Collective Campus website for, for more info. Otherwise, no filter media, trying to build that up and essentially get more podcasts on board. So like I said, we're at six right now. But I think for, for the experiment to really hold, I guess for us to run an effective experiment, we need to have more podcasts on board. So something like 50 podcasts, because okay. coming back to the 80-20 principle, if we have 50 podcasts on board, then chances are that maybe one of those podcasts is going to be like that that podcast that generates 50% of the listeners. It's going to be the, right. the home run. Then maybe two or three will be doing really well. And then the rest might be also rounds. And then over a period of time, you know, you offboard them, you bring new ones on board and you end up with a stable of really high performing podcasts. At least that's, that's the theory. So we'll be running that experiment over, over the next few months. But, um, man. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun though. I did, I created one podcast myself called battle of the bands, which uh, just took in uh, the rivalry between Metallica and Megadeth to uh, thrash metal bands from the eighties. And uh, it forced me to just do something different, you know, go off, research the bands and then pr- create this sort of narrative form podcast where I actually speak out, you know, the, tell the story and I try to I try to mimic what people said and, and, and knock out some accents, but I totally failed at that. But nonetheless, <laughs> a lot of fun. So you know, I guess in this time of lockdown where a lot of people perhaps don't have the opportunity to go out, see music, see com- comedy and whatnot, you know, taking on some form of creative pursuit, I think is, is a great source of, uh, of joy and, and fulfillment. So 
just worth 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 doing for nothing else other than the the good vibes. Yeah, and I love that the, your attitude and your approach to this with the experimentation, you know, between lemonade stand and then collective campus, and then you had this podcast, you know, and then you've got your the battle of the bands and. Uh, I think the media company, maybe, you know, the early part of next year, we'll, we'll circle back with you and see how that's going. Cause I think that would be an interesting discussion as you look to build the, you know, the company of the future and, you know, leverage all the best pieces through technology and people. And, and I think it'd be a really interesting conversation. So last question is, and I ask this to everybody, what is one thing you would highly recommend? And I'm super curious on this because of how many things you're passionate about. <laughs> Oh man, uh, I, there are so many things. <laughs> but I, if you ask me this question in an hour, I'd probably say something completely different, Brett. But for me, turning the lights off or just dimming the lights about two hours prior to to bed for me has been really helpful in in falling asleep in a timely fashion. So, and if you can't do that, if, if for whatever reason you need the lights on, then getting a pair of say blue blocking glasses, which you can probably get online for 50 bucks, which basically, cause the problem with blue light, whether it's your you know house lights or whether it's your smartphone, the TV is it suppresses the release of melatonin, um, which is critical for us uh, to, to get us to sleep. But by wearing these glasses or by turning the lights down effectively has the opposite effect, um, which makes it much easier to fall asleep. And sleep is absolutely critical. Like so many people are only getting about five to six hours sleep a night, but unless you're a couple of standard deviations from the mean, most people need close to eight hours in order to regulate their emotions, in order to be able to think critically, to be great problem solvers and and everything that comes with that. And, um, you know, the lack of that over the lack of that eight hours over an extended period of time has also been shown to preempt neurodegenerative disease, Alzheimer's, dementia, and everything else. So, um, I think it's one thing that perhaps we don't pay enough attention to. And so many of us think that, well, I'm fine. I perform well on four hours sleep a night, but the thing about that is you don't know you're sleep deprived when right. you're sleep deprived. You've just normalized that. That's become your baseline. And if you do cultivate the ability to get a full night's rest over extended periods of time, you might find that you feel like a completely different person. Yeah, it's so true. It's probably, I'd say the last six months, I've really started paying more attention to sleep and the type of sleep and REM and deep. And, you know, it's funny, I do actually feel maybe it's the placebo effect because I feel like, oh, man, I didn't think I had a really good night's sleep. But then I looked at my number and I'm like, oh, I slept better than I thought. And all of a sudden I feel a little bit better than maybe I, I yeah. did. But yeah, I mean, again, better late than never, but I started to focus and I feel a hundred percent. I've kind of transitioned from that night owl to more of the earning the morning person and mm -hmm. still not sure where my natural cadence is, but what I was finding at night, I was doing zero product. Anything was, there's was nothing productive. So when I kind of flipped that switch, went to bed a lot earlier, now get up at five 30, you know, a little bit to wake up, but then, you know, by six I'm doing kind of the, I wouldn't call it flow state, not quite there yet, but you know, a lot of my writing in that type in the morning and started to block mm -hmm. it off. So I think it's become either it's become a really good habit <laughs> or my yeah. body or my time clocks actually shifted a little bit. Mm, it's interesting. And something you touched on there is you know, the different types of sleep. So that deep sleep and well, the, the rapid eye movement sleep and the non-rapid eye movement sleep. So rapid eye movement sleep is that deep sleep. And 
turns out that about 75% of that deep sleep occurs between the sixth and eighth hour in an eight hour uh, sleep cycle. Interesting. And, and that deep sleep, yeah, and that deep sleep is fundamental for um, creativity and emotional regulation. Yet so many people are only sleeping, say, six hours, which means they miss out on the vast chunk of that deep sleep. And so yes. they wake up feeling irritated and they're not thinking clearly and everything else. So that's why getting that extra two hours above and beyond what your typical person is getting these days is, is so important. Yeah. And I'll screw up the, 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 the rhythms too, right? Because I find when I wake up, when I'm out of sync and I wake up maybe later than I normally do, but I'm, I'm a little bit more tired. But if it's in that right cycle and I wake up, then I feel really good, even if it's earlier. So I'm still playing with it all. I'm yeah. taking this off topic again. Well, that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's all it is. I mean, we just play with things and none of us ever truly arrive at being this perfectly optimized human being, but you know, we've got to try. So that's yeah. what it's all about. And every day we can do it better. So Steve, I, I will include everything in the, the show notes, but you know, if there's folks, one, I would highly encourage you to pick up the book. You won't regret it no matter where you are, corporate, startup, early in your career later it's it's a really good book and you also have a, a ton of great content on, on your website so if folks do want to reach out to you where's what's the best way for them to uh, track you down sure so uh, timerichbook.com is the best place to find out more about the book uh, pick up a copy you can also download the first chapter for free as well as that uh, automation guide uh, if they want to learn more about me my work steveglaveski.com is the best place that's g-l-a-v-e-s-k-i um, and there's links to all my work, uh, articles, contents, podcasts, you name it. It's all there. Yeah. And again, I'd also highly encourage people to check out your podcast. I think it's really good. And no matter what your interests are, I mean, you touch it. If, if you like this and listening to Steve today, you're really going to like his podcast. So Steve, again, thank you very much for taking the time. I appreciate it. And you have a great, you're just getting your day started, maybe a little bit later. I didn't realize we were 13 hours ahead of you. So yeah, quarter, quarter to nine in the morning at the moment. So my day is just getting started. Fortunately, I'm an early bird. So that means that I like doing my podcast early in the morning so I can actually think. Uh, I have an 8.30 p.m. one tonight, but uh, I imagine I'll dig deep and get that done. But I really appreciate you having me on, Brett. I appreciate uh, the work you're doing. Um, you know, obviously trying to empower B2B founders to think differently and you know, optimize their businesses and put more value into the world rather than just do stuff for the sake of doing stuff and, and shut up shop within five years like 50% of businesses do. And um, really enjoy the conversation today. I enjoyed going down different rabbit holes. And uh, yeah, I'd like to wish you all the best. And also whatever comes of the election, I'd like to wish all the Americans listening to this all the best uh, in, in 2021 as well. I think we all need a vacation from it. So I think that's what we'll do. <laughs> and the last thing I'll close on when you said it is, yeah, life's too short to go through the motions is one thing I remind my kids all the time. And if you're not passionate about it, find something you are because it's just time's going to fly by. So I think we can end on that one. <laughs> 100%. If, uh, if you live your life to make other people happy, uh, you make yourself miserable. So uh, well, I think a great place you. to end it. Awesome, Steve. Thank you very much. Have a great rest of your day. We'll catch up with you hopefully in the early part of next year. Thank you so much, Brett. All right, take care.